personal interaction, but we do a really, really poor job of, of, of equipping and empowering and enabling people who are gentle. We, 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 we tend to, it doesn't really matter which sides of the political spectrum you're on or, or if, even if it's not a political position, I mean just like a position, a, you know, a, a, a job around you. Who do we hire into positions of authority? Strong leaders. Leaders who are unwavering, who are tough. We want, I think, I think it's, it's, you know, it all started, and we could go down a history lesson with this, but it all started in what we call the tough on crime era, where people got ex- increasingly and increasingly, hey, we got to be, we have to make sure that the people who are in power are going to punish those that need to be punished. And it trickled down, it, it started up at, like I said, the political level, but then it, it worked its way into our everyday life. Until now, we actually are even in a position where when you watch media, when you watch TV shows, the, the, the people that are you know, in rom-coms that are, that are uh, the attractive people, they're tough. They're unwavering. They're men who don't cry. We were just watching This Is Us, a TV show that's super popular right now. Um, and the, uh, the, the guy, the heartthrob from This Is Us, the dad who, um, I'm not going to give you any details about the show, but the dad who's uh, played by Milo, um, um, is, uh, he, he's, he's, uh, he's like this tough, strong father figure. You know, he struggles with some, th- some things. He has some, he has some alcohol issues and, and some other things, but, but, but he's tough. You know, he goes to the army and he comes back. He doesn't talk about it ever, you know? She asks him, oh, do, do you ever cry? No, never. He's tough. And then, then that's the guy right now that's being lifted up in the media. As, oh, this is the guy that everybody wants to marry. And I'm like, really? I don't get it. I'm a sensitive guy. Maybe I'm just going out of style. But, but, um, but as we continue to think, like, as we look at this, we say, oh, gentleness, like this idea of gentleness, this idea of people who are meek, that's the, that's the word in the KJB, meekness. It's not, it's, it's, it's perceived, meekness is now perceived as weakness. But the thing about the kingdom of God, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So it's contradictory to our pop, popular culture where we say the people who are going to inherit the world, the people who can take over the world, the people like Alexander the Great, like he almost took over the whole world. He got pretty close, probably closer than anybody else has ever gotten. And when Alexander the Great, he, he didn't take over the world by meekness. It was an example of meekness inheriting the earth. It was an example of strength, taking the earth, claiming it. And so as we talk about the fruit of gentleness, the first thing that we have to do is we have to name, first and foremost, that the fruit is a gift. It's a good thing. Because the, f- the longer we talk about, the longer we get down this path of saying, oh, okay, well, what is gentleness today? The, the more we'll see that it's a, it's a value that, that, is, that is fading into the background. And if we, if we allow it to completely fade into the background, we will completely lose this concept in Scripture that sees Jesus and his strength and his bravery as specifically meek. 
And I think that this, you hear evangelical preachers getting up and talking about it now because they don't, like they want to reclaim the strong Jesus. Because, oh, I hate when people say that Jesus is meek. I don't. I think that it's just another way in which the church continually speaks truth into the world. It says, you know, the, the land that we worship on the, on the throne in Revelation is a land that is slain. It's a lamb who lays down his life. The, sh- the good shepherd is not the one, the good shepherd's not David who has the sling to, f- to slay the wolf. Jesus says the good shepherd's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what strength is in Jesus' book. That's what strength is in Scripture. Scriptural strength is very rarely the hero who conquers through military might. It's almost exclusively, especially in the New Testament and into Revelation, the words of the apostles. The person who conquers through meekness. And so there's going to be three words I'm going to say interchangeably today. Meekness, humbleness, and gentleness. I'm going to say all three of those words interchangeably, and if you're going to say, well, what is, what's the difference between those? I want you to start thinking of the, the gentleness as it's described in a biblical value according to uh, scholars is all three of those. Humility, humbleness, meekness, and gentleness. They're interchangeable. And so... We also have been talking about in this series how all of these things are gifts, right? They're, they're, you can't claim them. You can't white-knuckle them. You can't become gentle just because you want to. Um, and this is one that I, uh, I struggle with. It's hard for me to be gentle. You know, I'm, I tend to be kind of a, I tend to be the guy in a basketball game who throws elbows. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you always have to have the one. I'm the guy in the volleyball game when people start talking. Like, I start aiming at people's faces, right? Like, this is like, like, this is, you know, this is, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a gentle person. I, I want to win. And so this is tough for me. So I know for, for in my own life, I can, I can want to be gentle, but I have to work towards it. And so I want to offer to you that in the same way that the other fruits of the Spirit, when we talk about fruits, the reason that this agricultural metaphor is used, I think, is because, one, you can't, if anybody, anybody who's a gardener, um, maybe Carolyn is opposite. Maybe she could do this, but I can't do this. You can't make something grow that doesn't want to grow. And specifically, you can't make something produce fruit that doesn't want to produce fruit. If you want something to be fruitful, you have to, yes, set up the conditions for its fruitfulness, but ultimately, at some point, you have to start relying on the fact that God's just going to make it work or not work. And so I want to offer to you this. If we're really going to pursue gentleness, we can't white-knuckle it, we can't make it happen, but we can set up an environment. Let me give you an example. So if you're going to have a tree that produces apples, Right? You could put that tree in the Sears lobby where we had an apple tree. And uh, you can hope that it produces fruit, but uh, you know what? That apple tree never produced apples because it was in a lobby. Or you can plant a tree next to a stream with a lot of good sun cover, and in the fall, it's probably going to have apples. Now, now, I want you to hear this. When Jesus talks about the fig tree outside Jerusalem, he says, look, that tree is set up to, for success, and yet it doesn't, have, it doesn't have the Holy Spirit, and so it's not producing fruit. It doesn't always work that way. You can have all the conditions, right? You don't have the Spirit. You're still not going to produce fruit. But you can also have the Spirit and, be produ- and having so, have the conditions be so bad that the Spirit is just hanging out inside like, 
What are we doing? Like, we can't produce any fruit in this environment. And so I want to offer to you that the, that the single most determinative factor, other than the Holy Spirit, that can lead to gentleness in your life is proximity. Proximity, specifically proximity to suffering. People who tend to be proximate to suffering tend to be more gentle. Let me give you an example of this. Today I went to Mariano's before I got here, and I got some eggs. See? Here we go. Now, I mean, you're not supposed to reference Bill Cosby anymore, but he had this great thing about having chocolate cake for breakfast. You guys remember this? And his kids come downstairs, and he has chocolate cake for them. And one of the, th- the beginning of it, when he's going to make them breakfast before he gets some chocolate cake, he says, you know, you got to... When you take out the pans, you just blam on the stove, and you take out the milk, blam, and you take out the, you know, you take out the, the butter, blam, and then he goes, and then you got to take out the eggs, and he goes, you got to be careful with eggs. <laughs> because eggs, you got to be gentle with eggs. Otherwise, they break. And I'll tell you one thing. You guys ever remember church picnics doing the egg toss? Proximity matters. Chris, come on up. You guys don't know this yet, but Chris was a, uh, was a college athlete, so Chris got gentle hands. Now, see, if we were going to play an egg toss, we could probably do it okay, right, Chris? Oh, look at all you guys. See right here? See, look at, look at our proximity. So it's, e- so it's ooh, easy. But the farther we get away, the harder it gets, right? Like, it's still, it's not terrible yet, but like, you know, you can just, you can get farther and farther away. And, and, and like, and see, here's the thing. If I got like really far back here, Chris could throw the egg. Oh, come on, Chris. You got to throw it a little harder than that. I, I almost dropped that one. Come on now. Here we go. See? Okay. No, so like we could just, here we go. And see, he's, we're still, we're not having any problems. See, I was a softball player, so I know. Th- it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Here you go, Chris. Come on, guys. You think I was going to make Chris throw this egg? It was hard-boiled. Thanks, Chris. Oh, my goodness. But I love the yolk. Hang on a second. Here's the thing. Hmm. Yeah, there's some water. I'll be all right. Here's the thing. Maybe I won't. Who's got water? <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, I just backwashing water. So. <laughs> Here's the thing. Just like the egg at some point, if we had really done this and we had gotten farther and farther, me, me and Chris wouldn't have been able to catch it anymore. Chris would have been able to. I wouldn't have been able to. The farther you are away from suffering, where you can't even see it. See, what if me and Chris had gotten so far away that we couldn't even see it anymore? And he asked me to be gentle with the egg. I couldn't even see where he was coming. He had a big slingshot, you know. You think I would have been gentle catching that egg? It was really, really easy to be gentle when we were really, really close. And the farther away we got, it was a little harder. 
But I promise you at some point it would have become impossible. And there are so many people who ask questions, well, why aren't people just more nice to their neighbors? Why aren't people just more kind to whatever? And it's a pretty simple answer. Because if you don't actually know your neighbor, you can't love them. You can't be gentle with someone who you can't even see. And so as I've gone around in this last couple weeks, and I have become aware and met with many of the individuals in beds, but also with individuals who are serving the community in a greater capacity, I have met so many gentle people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but also proximate to the suffering that they wish to alleviate. And I've also heard calls from many people who are not proximate, who may go to church every single week, who may have the Holy Spirit. I'm not a judge, and I'm not trying to blaspheme because that's unforgivable. I don't understand that passage. Don't ask me to explain it. Okay. There are a lot of people who go to church every week, but they're so far from suffering that, that they have an arbitrary picture. They don't even know what they're looking at anymore. They don't even know the person that they see. They're trying to play egg toss with somebody who's a figment of their imagination. There were plenty of people who got on the Facebook page. I put them up last week, and people said, oh, those are all positive responses. Yes, I was somewhat selective. Because the truth is, the majority of people are positive. The vast majority. But there is a minority. And that minority is almost exclusively people who have no proximity to the suffering of those that we're helping. People who make statements like, well, all homeless people, you don't know any homeless people if you said all homeless people. That's like when people call me and they're like, well, all millennials, and I'm like, you don't know many of us. Like, all Swedes. Come on. <laughs> you know what, Herm? Herm was here a lot this week, so I'll let that one slide. Whenever you hear people start making grandiose statements, well, what are we going to do because they're all on drugs? Yeah, like, really, man? What are we going to do? They could all just get a job. Really? All? When, when the person who you are dealing with is a figment of your imagination, they're not a real person, you have no proximity to the people who you're talking about, you tend to make statements like all that are not very gentle. This is why, by and large, we have so much polarity in this country. And this is why it's necessary for us to become a church where it doesn't exist. People ask me all the time, do you think the church should be political? I say yes, I think the church should absolutely be political. It should be the one place where people can come from all political backgrounds and join together and have conversation. It should be very political in that way. Do I think that the church should support one specific political party? No, that would be ridiculous. 
We're all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But here's the thing. When churches polarize as the society polarizes, when, that's when we start to lose gentleness. We talk about all those people who do blank. All those people who have this procedure done. All those people who uh, live here. All those people who look like this. All those people who travel across the desert so they come to our country like this. We, we can't make those statements unless we know those people. And that's what I have increasingly become aware of. People in our neighborhood who have worked with homeless people or lived somewhere where there is a high population of homeless people that are visible, because there are homeless people here, they're just invisible. They don't make those statements. They call and they say, can I volunteer? The people who call and say, what are you doing? I can't have my kids walking around with people with needles hanging out of their arms. Those are the people who don't actually know any homeless people. And so I've gotten to meet a couple of wonderful people. I've actually known these people, but I've gotten to know them better in the last week. Robin from the Orland Township. She called me last week. Uh, on Friday, we delivered a, a car full of groceries to a person in Orland on behalf of the, down, the township who has a uh, food pantry. And we also delivered them some personal care items because that's our contribution, right? But I drove them over there to that person. And Robin has such a heart because she's both empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit and proximate to the suffering of the people in her community. She works the food pantry. Tina and Flo and the rest of the bed staff. These people are empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit, but they're also proximate to the suffering of others. You have more famous examples than the people in our own community like Mother Teresa or Jane Addams or Desmond Tutu. I added Desmond because I was only listing women, and I realized we probably should list a man, but clearly we need to catch up, men. They all make themselves so proximate to suffering that, other, with, that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the result is that they become incredibly gentle people. But this is where the sermon's going to take a little bit of a twist. Because to sometimes to provide gentleness to the least of these, you cannot be so gentle to those who want to oppose the least of these. I want you to think of Jesus for a moment. It's a good example. Just in church, you ever hear the story about the Sunday school teacher who showed the picture of the squirrel, and she said, kids, what is this? And nobody answered. She said, kids, what is this? And they kept answering. And finally, one kid, the preacher's son, stood up and he said, I'm sorry, um, that's a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. So, um. <laughs> He was reprimanded often by religious leaders. Most of the time that Jesus gets in trouble, FYI, just for hanging out with people who they didn't want him to hang out with. People make a lot of claims, oh, Jesus did this and he upset them this way. Most of it was hanging out with the wrong people. He associated himself with the crowd that the religious leaders didn't want him to associate himself with. Uh, second thing, really early on in the Gospel of Mark, the, the religious leaders decide to kill Jesus. A lot of people read over Mark 3, the beginning of Mark 3, but if you, if you uh, set the stage, Mark is not that long of a book, you set the stage, Jesus doesn't do very much before they decide to kill him. It takes him a while to kill him because he goes off and does his thing and then he comes back. But they decide to kill him in the first, like, eight verses of chapter 3. And they do it 
because, the, 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 not really the straw that broke the camel's back, but the one thing that he did that was unforgivable in their eyes, and they decided we're going to go, we're going to plot to kill him with the Romans at this point, is when he, in a religious service, calls up somebody who was not supposed to be in the religious service, a man who had a disability, and he, not only does he heal the man on the Sabbath, but he says, stretch out your arm, expose your disability to everyone in the room so everybody has to look at the pain that you're in. In other words, make everybody here proximate to your suffering. Because Jesus was not necessarily healing the man, he was healing the crowd. And those in the crowd who wished to keep the status quo, those in the crowd who wished not for the man to be healed because they enjoyed the privileges of the hierarchy that existed, decided at that moment, this guy's got to die. That was the first time they tried to kill him. The second time they tried to kill him was when he stood up in his own town of Galilee and he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Now, other people had proclaimed themselves to be the Messiah and they weren't, nobody tried to kill them. So, okay, so why Jesus? Because instead of proclaiming himself as the Messiah by taking up a sword and saying, I'm leading a violent revolution against the Romans, which is what everybody wanted him to do, he said, he, he opens up Isaiah instead and says, I came to proclaim good news to who? The poor. I came to set the captive free. I came to restore the recovery of sight to the blind. They were upset that his political platform was not based on their privilege. It was based on lifting up those who they wanted to keep prisoner, the disabled, and the poor. Eventually, he goes into Jerusalem, and he picks up a whip, and he really does the most ungentle thing ever, and he drives the money changers out of the temple. And at this point, a lot of commentators want to ask, well, Jesus wasn't being very gentle, but Paul says one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness, so how does that work? And if you understand the, the context of the time, I could preach a whole sermon about this, but basically, the money changers were there so that they could rip off poor people. That's what they were there to do. They were there to hold religion hostage, their sacrificial system hostage, so that the poor would not have access to it. And so Jesus, in an act that is extremely gentle to the least of these, does something somewhat ungentle and whips the people out of the temple who are causing them violence socioeconomically. And eventually they, kill, they do crucify him for all of these things and more. And what is the result? The result is that Jesus' social circle, we read about this not only in the Bible in the book of Acts, not only in the epistles written after Acts, but also we read in Roman history that the Christians, those people who believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the result of them following him around and listening to his teachings and watching his work was that they basically became a social justice organization that was focused entirely on caring for widows and orphans and the least of these and, the, and, and, and healing the sick. That we like to think that, that, that 
the whole story of the apostles is just Peter standing up and preaching because that's what we like to do. But ultimately, of the 12 disciples, Peter preaches, 11 of the rest serve. It's only a gift for some people. But here's the thing. We all want to be evangelists, but very few people want to be servants. And so in Christ's absence, the Romans have to start, in the same way the religious leaders do, the Romans at one point think, this is kind of crazy, they think that the Christians are kidnapping uh, vulnerable people and killing them and eating them because, this is true, because they said that they, whenever they gathered, they consumed the body and the blood, and there was no more poor people. So they would find, they would go into a town, the Christians would enter a town, and, and there would be all these poor people lined up, right? Lined up on the street begging for money. And they would take them all in, and then they would eat the body and blood, and then there would be no more poor people, and everyone would have justice. And they were like, they must be eating them, what else could they be doing with them? Equipping them, enabling, and empowering them to no longer be slaves to their circumstances. That's what was happening. That's the people that Jesus, that were following Jesus, that saw what he did and said, we're going to do the same thing. And so I'm wrapping up here. I'm done. And I have some questions for you. Chris, you can come on up. Team. I want to urge you this morning to find a way to be proximate to someone in your life who needs a little gentleness. Like that Otis Redding song. Meet someone for dinner who is hurting or lonely and listen to them and look at them in the eyes. Sit with someone who is somewhat unlovable and you know who we are, those of us who are unlovable, for one reason or another. <laughs> or who's hard to talk to. Or maybe somebody who forgets your name every two minutes because they're just getting up there. Just learn to be gentle. Volunteer at a homeless shelter. There aren't many around here, but you know somebody who knows about them. Serve a meal. Or better yet, deliver a meal. Find, find somebody who, don't just serve a meal, to, to somebody else can do that. Find somebody in your life who could use a meal and deliver it to them and then eat with them. Develop a dialogue with someone who's incarcerated. Might seem impossible, but I know based on my friends who work at Stateville that most of these men, when they leave, you know what they say? to these men and women who are, who, are, who are free people who are going into the jail, they say, just don't forget about us. They don't say, try to get me a lawyer to get me out. They don't say this or that. Or the other. They say, just don't forget about us. There are a lot of people looking for pen pals at Stateville and other places that could just use somebody to write back to them and say, I heard you. I don't think that you vanished off the face of the earth when they put you in a concrete box. Just do whatever you can to get 
in proximity. And when the water of proximity and the sunlight of the Holy Spirit shine upon you, created in the image of God, Christian, wonderful, beautiful human being, don't be surprised if little fruits of gentleness start to pop.